Hi there, you're listening to High Performance, the award-winning podcast that unlocks the minds of some of the most fascinating people on the planet. I'm Jake Humphrey, and alongside Professor Damien Hughes, we learn from the stories, successes, and struggles of our guests, allowing us all to explore, be challenged, and to grow. Here's what's coming up today. These guys have, have spent money to come and watch. They don't want to see you block the ball. Go and win the game. And if you lose trying to win, we're all happy, but go and win the game. People have spent the money to come and watch you here at Lords Home of Cricket. Entertain them. Go and hit boundaries, hit sixes, you know, try and take wickets at every ball. If you can hold on as long to that feeling that you used to get as a kid when you open the curtains on a Saturday morning and you're praying for it not to be raining, you know, it's sunny and you're like, yes, I can play cricket, that's awesome. Or, yeah, I can play sport. It's a game based around being able to deal with failure and being able to deal with uh, someone getting the better of you but then bouncing back. You know, you're not going to score 100 every day. You're not going to get five for every day. But that's why you can't judge yourself on the outcome all the time. You have to judge yourself on how you felt. Challenge your limitations, but learn and stick by your strengths, I'd say. So, welcome to High Performance, former England cricketer Stuart Broad, um, a man who had 18 years as a cricket professional, 17 years playing for England, delivering some of the most memorable moments the sport has ever seen. But what we get into on this conversation is how Stuart got there, both physically and mentally. And trust me, you are going to be blown away by the depths and the lengths that he went to, to get to the top and to stay there. And he is fascinating when he talks about the devastating moment that changed everything for him. Now, this was recorded live in a central London theatre in partnership with Fane. And after we spoke to Stuart and we had an interval, we then did an awesome Q&A where there was loads of questions put to him about the recent Ashes series, his favourite moments playing for the England team. He told some, honestly, some unbelievable hilarious stories about his time in the game. And if you would like to hear that exclusive Q&A, which I think tells you so much about the kind of guy Stuart is, then just download the High Performance app right now. Go to the App Store, download the app, and you can get that exclusive content for free right there. But let's do this then. Let's find out how someone who stayed at the top of English cricket for so long managed to do it. As we welcome England cricketer Stuart Broad to the High Performance Podcast. 
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Nice to see you. Great to be here. Awesome crowd, isn't it? Isn't it an awesome crowd, yeah. Um, listen, let's sort of talk about like, where you're at this evening because you sit here tonight with the, the applause ringing in your ears, a beautiful photo behind you of you wearing your, your England cap, wearing your whites, but you sit here as a, as a former England cricketer. Like, has that sort of sunk in? Have you come to terms with that? I'm glad you avoided the word retired England cricketer there. Yeah. You, you've oh, listened. I've read the book where he says, <laughs> please don't say the word retired. Um, yeah, I, I mean, ultimately, I think anyone know when you walk away from something that you absolutely love, it's, it's one of the most difficult decisions going. And uh, ultimately, I was in a place where I was bowling really well. I was enjoying my bowling. I was loving playing under Stokes, and Baz. The, the team environment was sensational. Turning up each day, having a lot of fun. And, and of course, there's always pressure with international cricket, but I, I didn't feel a huge amount of pressure and scrutiny. I trusted the, the hierarchy. Um, but ultimately, I knew I had a goal to finish playing for England. I, I knew I wanted my last ball to be at the pinnacle, England versus Australia, at the Oval, a gorgeous place to play. I think that's what makes me most proud is that I stuck to my principles of knowing that I, I, I wanted to finish at the top. And, you know, I went through a bit of an emotional roller coaster in the final 10 days of my career. I started thinking about it a bit at Old Trafford and then the Oval just came so quickly. You know, when you've got a big decision hanging over you, time seems to go, like, disappear on you a bit, doesn't it? So... Um, tried not to think too much about it because ultimately we, we need to win the Oval Test match. I've got to focus on performance and, and deliver a, a good game. But got to the Friday night, uh, so that would be day two, and a day two, and I'm like, I've got to make a decision here. You know, I've, I've, caught, I, I've kept my sort of inner circle tiny. You know, uh, Neil Farah, the great friend of mine, Molly, my mum and Alistair Cook were basically my real sort of confidences in it. And um, I, I had to, it was getting to that stage of, the game is approaching the end. You know, I need to, I need to, to know what I'm thinking. And uh, I FaceTime Molly on the Friday night, uh, still umming and ahhing a little bit. And uh, she said, trust your gut, trust your gut. You know, we'll support you forever. Problem is I had no gut feeling. That was the really difficult thing. I, I said to Molly that on the FaceTime, I said, you know what? I just wish I was like playing badly. So something was telling me, just walk away from it. You, you, you know, you, I've always had that fear of bowling against a 21-year-old and them going, I thought he was supposed to be good. Um, but I, I, So I put the FaceTime down, still a bit undecided. I was like, right, I'm going to go and knock on Stokes' door, verbalise the decision and see how I feel. Uh, because ultimately, I know him really well. He's one of a great friend of mine. I knew he wouldn't tell anyone and I sort of knew I could call him 7am the next day if it didn't feel right and go, Stokes, you forget that. You know, I'm cancelling that decision. <laughs> so I walked down the corridor, three doors down, knock on the door. And he's like, who is it? I'm like, uh, Brody. He goes, I'm icing my knee. I was like, right. So he's like plugged in, you know, to the, to the wall and he's game ready. He said, uh, can you call me? I'm like, ah, oh, I prefer to see you face to face. And he said, as soon as I 
I said that. He's like, I know something's coming here. So he got up, opened the door. I put my hand out and said, that's me. Uh, and he goes, what do you mean? Wow. I said, this is going to be my last game of cricket. And he, go, and he was like, you're joking, aren't you? I was like, no, you know, it's been a hard decision. But I knew I couldn't go with too much doubt because I didn't want it to be a negotiation. I needed to like, yeah. say it. And uh, he gave me a massive hug. I said, thank you so much for being like a great friend, but also giving me the most enjoyable 15 months. Uh, I said, just keep it to yourself tonight because I need to see how I feel in the morning type thing. And then woke up at 7am the next morning and felt lighter, fresher, happy, you know, no, no sad feelings uh, and knew it was the right decision. And that's maybe when my gut feeling told me that it was the right call. So actually verbalising it to Stokesy helped me um, accept it and then went on the most incredible sort of journey for a couple of days that I've had in my career really. And we will talk about those throughout the evening. Why does the word retirement sit so uneasily with you? 37 years old. (laughs) (laughs) That's literally everyone's dream. It feels so like, (laughs) it feels so final that word doesn't it, retirement. You know I I just see it very much as a a changing of career, a changing of paths. Um, Ultimately, sport is a a funny beast in the fact that uh, most sports are quite age-dependent. You know that you you come to a time when either you can choose to go, which very rarely do you get to go on your own terms, or an injury comes or a loss of form comes and age wipes you out. So, uh, yeah, I I try and avoid the word retirement at all costs, really, and um, just see it as a a new chapter in life, a a change of direction, and I think that just helps me, you know, change my focus to being a positive one. And I know it's really early days, but how has it been since that incredible final ball? Because I don't think we speak to, you know, newly retired sports people very often about actually what it is like when the sense of purpose sort of disappears overnight. You know, I've spent my life working with former professionals, and I still see, like when they're asked for their ID when we turn up to a football match or whatever, I see it sort of like rankles with them a little bit. Actually, if you say about ID, I, uh, so I, I, I said the R word there. I, um, I moved away from the playing side on the Monday, the Monday night. So the Tuesday sort of packed up the hotel, went home, nice relaxed day. And I was actually, had booked these back in in February. I was working at Lords for, for Sky on the Wednesday on a hundred game. So I had my players pass, which gets you into every ground uh, around the country at any time. You know, if you need to go and train or use the gym or facilities, get to the gate of Lords and my players pass, zap, just this red light comes up. Oh, wow. And I'm like, like, try it again, red light. I was like, oh, sorry, this is the players pass, should get me in. He goes, oh, let me check. No, no, I, I, I don't think you can get in. I said, well, can I, I'm working today, can I get in? No, you haven't got the right pass. So I'm there, like, outside with fans gathering around, like, trying to get it, call someone from Sky, saying, I need a new pass. This pass won't get me in. I'm not a player anymore. They've cancelled it on me already, type thing. So um, that was quite a a unique experience. But, yeah, I think I'm still riding a bit of a high Mm -hmm. from the end of July. It was the most incredible series, like, exhilarating, had, had everything. It had so much drama. One of the most enjoyable series I've played in. And I don't think it's going to necessarily hit me that I'm a former cricketer until I see Jimmy Anderson walk on the field with his whites and a cap or Stokesy take the field and I'm I'm not there. And I think, you know, I've been quite sensible over a period of time to chat to former pros and likes of Owen Morgan, Cookie, you know, friends that have moved away from the game. And every single one of them's had a moment at some stage of, 
oh my goodness, I, I, that's not me anymore. I'm not there anymore. And I think mine's either going to come when they go to India in January or when they walk out of Trent Bridge at the start of next season, that pre-season, you know, the freshly mown grass, that, like the sun, the, the weather's started to get better. It's cricket season. It might come then. But, but I'm prepared for that. I, I feel like I'm prepared for that. It's not going to hit me um, and be a big shock. So uh, I'll let you know when it comes. I want to talk in, the, in this sort of first half of the show about one of the key things really that, that stems from the book, which is your mindset and the way that you worked so hard behind the scenes, the things that we've never seen. Um, that you had to do to get yourself to where you wanted to be. So I'd like to start right at the very beginning. You know, you, you write in the book brilliantly about your mum saying to you, look, don't go to uni. Just give it a couple of years as a, as a professional cricketer. And if it doesn't work out, you can go to uni then. But why not give it a go? Why not explore and see? I'd love to know what it was like the first time that you turned up and actually suddenly this was no longer simply a game. This was now going to be your career. Yeah, so throughout, I was very lucky throughout my, my childhood. You know, my dad had played for England 25 tests. And sometimes I think when you're the, the child of someone that's achieved something, there's an added pressure or scrutiny or, you know, maybe coaches at clubs think, oh, you should be better than you are. Your dad played for England type thing. But I, I, my parents sort of protected me from that quite a lot. And mum was, was incredible for me because sport was about fun, about enjoyment. So I'd get back in the car after a game of football, rugby, cricket, whatever, First question, without fail, have you had fun? Have you enjoyed it? Her belief was you could um, turn up on a Saturday, get no runs, no wickets, drop a few catches, but you can still enjoy your time with your friends. You know, if, you, if you're basing everything at that age on performing and results, then it just creates so much pressure on you. And, and then it becomes like a job when you're trying to be learning and experiencing the most. And, and I tried to hold that mindset as much as I possibly could throughout my whole career about fun and enjoyment and definitely finished it the last 15 months with that being you know the pinnacle like the, my memories of cricket will be brilliant because of my feelings at the end but uh she she definitely it definitely changes when you become a pro it, it definitely does you know that if you can hold on as long to that feeling that you used to get as a kid when you open the curtains on a saturday morning and you're praying for it not to be raining you know it's sunny and you're like yes i can play cricket that's awesome or yeah i can play sport uh, and sometimes with media pressure and expectancy and and why you're not in the team why you're struggling a bit that you can lose that slightly um why is that? I, I'm not sure. I, I mean, I've tried to, I've never seen it as a job. It's always been a hobby for me. I love cricket. I hope to stay in cricket for the rest of my life. You know, my family, it's in my family's blood, really. It, it's, a, it's a great love of mine. But there's, there's something about crossing that line as a pro that maybe you just take it too seriously sometimes. Ultimately, it's a, it's a game of sport that you're playing with your friends. And I think that's what Baz and Stokes have done so incredibly well, is they've brought it back at the top level. By the way, you know, you know, with millions of people around the globe watching, they've brought it back to feeling like you're playing club cricket on a Saturday and almost feel like you should go and pay a tenner to play. Yeah. You know what I mean? It's that sort of feeling they've, they've brought it back to. So what was your emotion the first, the first time that you went to work as a pro cricketer? Were you excited? Was there a sense of imposter syndrome? What are your memories of that time? Uh, I, certainly the... I had a few different memories that I can, can remember. Uh, one was a really positive one. So I played in the biggest game of my career at the time was a T20 finals day at, at Trent Bridge. Um, and Essex had been traveling really well. They had a few stars in their team. We were like the underdogs. And I fronted up in that game. I, I was hugely competitive. You know, I didn't back down to any of their senior players. Ronnie Irani was, had had an amazing series for them. And 
attacked me a little bit. What age are you here? 19, I think. But he'd said, right, this is the young whippersnapper. I'm going to take him on verbally and physically and like try and overpower him. And I stood up to that really well. What was he saying? Mm. (laughs) Uh, He said, um, the rumours are true. You're you're as big a swear word as your dad was. (laughs) And I sort of said along the lines of, well, you're old enough to have played against both of us type route. (laughs) And got him out. He got a nine ball naught. And I, you can see when, when I get him out, I'm obviously like buzzing. And my whole team, because they've heard the verbals going on, erupt. But then after that sort of showing, I got picked for England. And this is, I wouldn't say it's imposter syndrome or anything. You know, I, I was buzzing to be there. I was really excited about the opportunity. But it's overpowering. You know, so 2006, I'm walking into a team room of those 05 heroes. You know, Strauss, Triscothic, Goff was in there, Harmison, and... You know, I, I've got no experience before. I'm suddenly in a team meeting with guys that I've idolised on TV and, and, and I'm there. You know, I rock up and they've all got Jaguars and Mercs and I've got a Vauxhall Corsa, you know. I'm a bit like um, parking in the car park in the corner type thing. Um, but Goffy, and I, I speak about this in the book, actually, how good Goffy was for me. And that's the reason I wore the number eight shirt throughout my career. He, he took me under his wing. He... he amazingly let me bowl with the wind on my England debut which you know that sounds a little thing but it was his little way of saying you're the youngster have every advantage going for you because I know how hard this is and uh, that was that was a really special thing for him to do and I I think that's why I I got that bond with him even now if I see him you know we have a hug and we just know that we've got that like number eight club we've got that that mutual respect because he treated me so well as as a kid you spoke nicely in the book as well about Otis Gibson. Yeah, I love him. What yeah. was it that you saw then in, in him early on and you thought, right, that is the standard that I need to be operating at? Yeah, like true professional. You know, he'd, he'd go to the swimming pool every single morning. I think he was 37, 38 at the time, but he committed so much work into his game that I think that was quite influential for me because I saw a 37-year-old doing that when I'm 18. I said, well, if he's doing it at that age, I should be doing it now. So he, he taught me everything about working on your game, looking to improve all the time, picking things in your game. Because he'd actually left the game and become a coach and come back out of um, finishing playing to play again because he felt he learned so much being a coach that he wanted to put it into practice again. And yeah, he, he, just, he just had nuggets of information just spurring me on all the time, but without filling me with, with all, sorts stuff. all sorts of stuff all the time. So yeah, he, on, he went on to coach yeah, the West Indies, South Africa. And you remember an early bit of advice from him where you thought that is... That's golden. It, it wasn't so much the verbal advice all the time. I could just watch him. I could just right. watch it. You know, he got in the battle on the field. He, he'd always do the hard yards on the field, which I respected. Um, but look after himself incredibly off it. You know, I, I'm lucky. Jimmy and I are the same. We've played in an era where we've got the nutrition, we've got the science, we've got the, the facilities. He almost did it before that era came. But I could, I could watch him and just think, I could get to 37, you know, if I do what he does. What I like is that you write in the book about your upbringing and you were talented and your parents gave you this opportunity and then you get the, the chance and, you know, you went up against Ronnie Irani and that went really well and suddenly you're playing for England. Got the blonde highlights. Got the blonde highlights. Went. You probably got rid of the Corsa. <laughs> and then uh, Durban happens. Mm. And what was probably the darkest day in your career at that point, I have no doubt was really important in shaping you for the future. Would I be Massively, right? yeah. And, uh, you know, I, I haven't really talked about uh, the 6-6s in Durban at all because I, I had this mentality that after 24 hours, I'm going to 
park the bus, leave it behind. I sort of knew where I'd, or was aware where I'd gone wrong. And I didn't want to have those feelings again in my playing career. It was too hurtful, too damaging. But I knew, I knew um, what I'd done wrong in that instance. Uh, I'd got maybe a touch comfortable as I was 21, maybe. And um, for three months, I was talented. I'd played for England a bit. I'd had the odd good performance. I was inconsistent. But I thought, yeah, I've got this game. I know what I'm doing. And I had no mental preparation. I had no real physical preparation that I, that I stuck to. And played this T20 World Cup game in Durban. South Africa played first. And we had a, maybe a 10, 15-minute turnaround for TV. Then the next game's on. So it's all a bit rushed. So, you, you know, you're, you're getting out there. You take a few catches, right? Get a feel for it. I only had time to mark one end of uh, the pitch where, I was, where my run-up would be because I knew I was going to start that end. So... Looking back on it, I, uh, the captain, I think it was Collie, said, oh, you're going to bowl this end 19th over. I was like, oh, all right, yeah. So I'm immediately thinking, okay, I've not marked run-up out there. That's not great. Um, so got the ball and just strode, like, got my run-up sorted, scratched the mark. So immediately I've not thought once about where I'm going to bowl, not thought once about my field. I'd not set about who I'm bowling at. You know, it was Doni at one end, UV at the other, both set, flat pitch, had no real plan and I tried to bowl, which I, you know, I tried to bowl six of the same delivery. And then really after three, I should have gone, that's not working. Yeah. Um, and was and, no one there to say to you, you're young, you're getting yourself into a hole here, just stop and um, take a breath? I think Collie sort of came up a little bit and said, do you think we should change the field or something? But by then everything was happening so quickly and spiraling out of control and... and why well, I think it was quite a, obviously a devastating thing to have happened to me at such a young age, but it, it gave me a bit of a kick to say, right, you need to get some processes in place to look after yourself under pressure. It all became a scramble. You know, if you've had moments in your career where you can't really remember that last 10 minutes, you're like, ooh, what happened there? So I needed to, to put some things in place that I never bowled six balls the same ever again. That was one learning for us. That was probably the only physical thing. But the, the, te- the, the mindset thing is I created a routine around that that I stuck with all the way up until my last game in, in July. And yes, it evolved and grew uh, over particularly the first three or four years of me learning about it. But it, it you know, I, I think I mentioned to you before, my dad said the game's 80% mental, 10%, uh, 20% technical when I was 15 years old. And I was like, what's he on about? Absolute nonsense. Um, I actually think it's more than that. It's probably 90-10 because the mental routines of what I put in place that day held me pretty strong for the next sort of 16, 17 years. And it took, almost took that moment of um, chaos to, to wake me up a bit, to realise talent doesn't really get you that far. It actually, you need to work very hard on the different side of the, the game and the sport that, that actually will drag you further. And I was lucky in the fact that that happened to me at 21 takes some players in all sports to the 25, 26 to really get to grips of starting that process. And then by the time they're 29, they get it. So they have three or four years of success. Whereas I felt like I got it by the time I was 26. So I could have 11 years of pretty consistent success. What changed after that moment? So my mum's always had a 24-hour rule. Like you're allowed to be a bit disappointed or focus on things that maybe didn't go so well for 24 hours, lose a game 24 hours, and then that 24 hours hits look forward, right, where are we moving to? And uh, I had the 24 hours in a hotel room of, of a bit of devastation. And then 
I'd start looking at the positives. Well, we were already out of the World Cup. Didn't, didn't knock us out of a World Cup. We didn't lose a trophy because of my poor decision-making, etc. I, I eventually came up with this thing called warrior mode, which would control everything about bowling a spell. So the routine of... of um, I'd always run over the boundaries edge because that's me then entering my, my battle arena, so to speak. And then I'd stick to a routine before bowling my first ball. It's funny, I'm talking here and it's all mental work. I didn't, not one bit of me went physically, I need to do loads of different things. It was, it was very much, I need to build a mental uh, framework about being able to deliver more consistently. And, and it took a bit of time to evolve, but I'd say the last 10 years of my career, I pretty much got it spot on. Look, that's quite a big thing to create an almost a different persona for the minute you cross the white line, this idea of warrior mode. I mean, that's, that's almost too much work for you to do on your own. So did you bring someone into the fold at that point or did you have conversations with you know, psychologists or anything that you maybe hadn't had until that point? Yeah, I, I, I must admit, I mean, I made my debut in 06. Um, sports psychologists were, they were maybe around, but they weren't overly used. It's become very much the culture now that, that every player would build a routine around training and playing with, with the team sports psychologist. But I probably only really grew into that 2008, 2009 of really working with some individual, uh, Mark Borden, who was with the team. And we'd check in all the time, you know, check, do sort of uh, little checkboards of what I'd be looking to, to achieve in that day. And he'd email me in the, the evening and say, did you do this? Did you do this? Did you do this? What sort of things? Um, did you get in a contest? It was never about the results. Never like, did you take wickets? Or yeah. Did you get in a contest? Did you create chances for your team? Did you lead the players in a competitive way? Did you give positivity to someone within the changing room? Just little things that take you away. I think with all psychology things, it probably evolves over time of things you want to tweak and want to, want to, want to stop. But one of the most important things actually was, remember as a bowler, the game can't start until you're ready. So actually, physically, the game doesn't move until I go, okay, I'm ready to deliver my, the first ball. And um, I would start that process the day before. So like I said to you, when I got hit for six sixes, I started that process. I didn't have a run-up marked. Yeah. I'd never practiced a ball from that end. So there was no process? There was no process. I was, I was, I was like scratching my mark, you know, having to bowl. So I'm, uh, not one moment did I think, what am I going to bowl first ball here? What's my field? I'd just gone, right, where's, where's you my run? You would go out with a plan for what your first ball was going to be. Well, I, it was unique in that World Cup because South Africa had played a game just before us and then there was a 10-minute turnaround and when we played the game, so you didn't have time to do a full warm-up and a check. But, um, you know, for the fi final 10 years of my career, the day before a game, I'd go to the end I was going to start and I'd bowl... I'd imagine the crowd cheering or booing like Australia. I'd imagine like if I'm at Lords, the champagne corks popping, all that sort of thing. I can really feel it. And then I'd bowl 24 balls in my mind, all just going through to the wicketkeeper. So then when I arrived on the day of the game, I felt like I'd already done that. Uh, and for five years, I, before I went to sleep the night before, I'd bowl those balls in my mind before I slept. But then I found I didn't need to do that because I could already feel the emotion of, of what I'd already done. So I was almost visualizing the bowling before I'd done it. So I felt comfortable when I did actually bowl. And that was warrior mode. You also write in the book about assassin mode, mm. which also sounds very dangerous. Um, and I think a few opposition players might have seen that over the years. Explain assassin yeah. mode. That's when warrior mode got a bit heated and I had to bring it down. You know, that's when I had to really sort of... 
if I if my emotions got a bit sky high or I got a bit competitive and don't like I think you remember with the Alex Carey incident when I was batting that I don't control this all the time bear in mind you know it's not a hundred percent success rate but uh assassin mode was just little things to bring my emotions down so warrior mode okay ashes day one ramp it up yeah ramp get the crowd going get bang up we go Assassin mode, ooh, things aren't going so well. Maybe it got a bit heated out there. You've leaked a few runs. How do you bring your emotions down? And that connected with that is disconnecting a bit from the game, picking, um, you know, going to talk to a teammate rather than getting too involved with an opposition. It's just putting a, a structure in place, really, that when it's not going so well on the field, instead of it not going so well for half an hour and you lose the game, doesn't go so well for 10 minutes you can drag yourself back out yeah. of there and go right let's get back on track what are we focusing on and you write often in the book about and you only sort of give it fleeting mentions oh my note making or my note taking or I wrote my notes and that helped me I'd love to delve a bit deeper into this if, if possible like when do you remember when you first started diligently writing notes to yourself in your career started to dabble at yeah 26 ish um how did it begin uh, I was work, working with the sports psychologist of the team, Mark Borden, and, and we started to, <laughs> actually one of them, this is a bit silly, but I st- I, Andy Flower was getting annoyed that I wouldn't turn around to the umpire when appealing, which was turned into a celeb appeal. So Andy had gone to the sports psychologist and said, I need you to work with Brody and get him turning around to the umpire when he, starts, uh, when he appeals. So the sports psychologist comes to me and goes, I've got a challenge for you. So I'm like, oh, yeah, should I work on a new ball? No, no, you've got to turn around to the umpire. So I'm like, oh, fair enough. Um, so he put in plans that I'd train it, actually, in practice, turn around. To, he'd stand as umpire. Every time I got an appeal, I'd turn around here. And then he'd review it every time. So he said, I need you to start writing down when you feel like it was the first thing that came to your mind to turn around and, and when it didn't spring to mind. After about three months of really trying to turn around, I realised this isn't working at all. I just can't physically bring myself to, to turn around. Like those, those 20 seconds when you hit someone on the pad, it's just meant to, you're just like flying around like with aeroplanes and all sorts. So, you know, I, I was like, I'm fighting a losing battle here, but there's, there's something in it that I really found therapeutic of writing things down. It connected me to my emotions and it connected me to, to how I wanted to, to target that day. And... I did it loosely and evaluated, uh, not on performance, but I evaluated like whether I uh, had good intent, whether I uh, created chances for the team, whether I led the team positively onto the field, whether uh, I spoke positively in the changing room. So that's what I evaluated at the start. And then... So back- you set yourself a challenge on the notes for that day or not? Was it reflective at the beginning? Reflective. It was, it was a, a, like an evaluation of the day. Did I, was I positive? Did I... Did I speak well in the changing room? Did I create chances? Did I have the right attitude in, in, on the field? And then it, the back end of my career, the last five, six years, it turned into how I wanted to operate. So I didn't ask myself those questions. I was more uh, three thoughts, um, three feelings, three things I'm grateful for. So every morning, uh, I mean, particularly throughout this Ashes series, I wake up, coffee, and go, you know, th- how am I feeling? And what I got really good at in the last six years is actually being genuinely honest with my feelings. I, I would actually write down. So first morning of, of the Ashes test at Edgebaston, I'm feeling nervous. You know, connect to that nervousness. Why am I feeling nervous? Of course I'm going to feel nervous. First day of the Ashes, it, you know, it sets up the pinnacle of, of the series. It's such an imp- I might bowl the first ball of it. So I need to prepare for that. That's why I've got a bit of 
anxiety and um you know i'd i'd get to, i actually that day got to the game chatted to jimmy <sighs> feeling a bit nervous how are you feeling he goes yeah i, I was going to mention the same to you because legs are feeling heavy already and i've not really done anything so we connected already because i had the i don't know like the not bravery but i'd i'd established how I was feeling in the morning, put it down on paper and that opened it up to me. Yeah. So then I could then connect with teammates and go, how are you feeling? You good? You, you feel great? And Jimmy, I went, no, I feel nervous. I said, God, I do as well. Actually. Were you lying to yourself at the beginning and not being really honest with actually how you felt, do you think? Uh, yeah, yeah, I was being, yeah. I was being um, how I wanted to feel yeah. instead of how I felt. And the, the, definitely the better mindset I got in the last couple of years of, how I felt helped me because I, I do think like sometimes I wake up knackered, like bold 20 overs feels to, and Stokesy and Baz are very positive in the change room. They want positive language. So I'd have to write down, right today, you're just going to have to be so over positive. Cause I know you feel tired, but go in and first thing you say is how good's that coffee at the hotel? You know, little things. I know that sounds silly, but I'd walk in and go, God, you don't have the cappuccino. It's unbelievable at the hotel, you know, cause it starts me off. Cause the, uh, the, the works I've done with psychologists, they say, Everyone would have had it when you work, walk into an office and someone goes, I feel tired. And you might not feel tired, but then you go, do I feel tired? Yeah, I do feel a bit tired, actually. Yeah, you had a bit of a late night. Yeah, I feel tired. So it, the, Baz's culture is about breeding confidence and positivity in that way. And he's so authentic with it. It doesn't necessarily come that naturally to me. So I had to connect with my note writing to then be able to go, I feel great actually and I'm actually going to give positive energy to the group because I've got my real like thoughts down on a piece of paper if that makes sense because you say in the book that there was a point where you were actually a bit negative maybe around the place yeah yeah, yeah. I mean I think I think definitely at day three you might have not any wickets or you might have not bowled well the pitch doesn't feel great so Edgebaston again for an example Lords for an example I had written in there appreciate the pitch isn't suiting you no it's slow no it's not really working for you but is what it is. Get over it. You know, you've noted it, but the, the lads don't need to hear that. Yeah. So that, that was the sort of thing that I think I developed massively with towards the end and wish I did that earlier for sure. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. 
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. And I still think, you know, particularly in this country, I still think we're a little bit suspicious of this sort of stuff. But the truth is, you know, you've operated at the elite level and gone out on the most incredible high. You wouldn't have been able to do what you did without it, would you? No, no. I think I relied on talent for the sort of early part of my career. And then Durban happened and that was a slap like, okay, talent isn't going to get you very far in this game. You've got to build other things. And then... um, I would say the, the mentality side of, of my game, I'm not the most talented. I, I have to work really hard. I, I always had something looking to drive me forward. I mentioned to you about having an Everest in my mind. What's my Everest? What am I chasing? So this summer it was, I know Steve Smith and Marnus don't like the ball so much moving away from them. I'm going to create an outswinger that I'm going to work really hard on. Of course I could bowl an outswinger. I'm 36 years old at the time. I needed to be better. I needed to be on the money straight away. And uh, that was something that moved me forward. And, and I always had to have a goal that was tangible and close. You know, so the Everest is, yeah, might be ashes in four years' time. What's going to get me there? Well, the outswinger to Marlinson Smith will help me. The work around the wicket to the left-handers will help me. Um, so it's little goals within a big one. Uh, and ultimately, if you just keep them in your own brain and don't, um, not verbalise them, but don't put them on paper to, to appreciate and look at and review against. Well, you're just floating around. You don't actually have the direction that you need. And you describe yourself in the book as being an adaptable realist. What's that? That was actually part of my um, psychological report. Yeah, the, the ECB do. They do sort of a, a, a big test on you as players every couple of years and it, to help the coaches, actually, so the coaches can figure out the best way to talk to players and get the best out of them. And, and yeah, I was an adaptable realist. So basically, don't give me wishy-washy nonsense. I don't want to hear, like, stats and facts that don't mean anything. Give me, a, give me a direct, this will improve you because of this, and then I can adapt and, be, and go for the, the realism of, of that information. And when you were on the pitch, um, you know, you got to this point, you'd made your notes, you'd been working with the psychologist, you'd incredible natural ability, working really hard, but things still go wrong. Absolutely. How did you deal with that? What were your, you, you, you wrote about trigger thoughts. What were the sort of trigger thoughts? What were the tools you had in your armour that when things weren't going right, you could deal with them? Well, I mean, having partnerships within the group was massive. So Jimmy is a, a great friend of mine and a big partner. Stokes, he's the same. I think it's really difficult. I have so much respect for individual sports people, you know, tennis players and who have to do all this themselves. If they're slightly off, they've got to find exactly what they're doing and put it right straight away. Whereas I definitely use the energy of other people to bounce ideas off and, and, and be like, Jim, oh, I just I feel like I'm overstriding. Have a look at this, would you, for two balls and give me your feedback. So a trigger for me would be get out of here, of your own brain, get, stop being internal get external for a minute, ask, a, ask an opinion of someone because it gets then out of my brain and into someone else's and they might go, actually, yeah, your knees are not picking up like they were. And then if that doesn't work, for me, the crowd. 
Because if I'm thinking technical, running in, going, right, where, where are my shoulders? What's my front arm doing? You know, all that wind's in my face. It's just put me off. I'm, I'm done. I need to have something else that's, that's got my mind in that competitive spirit. And the crowd became, in my notes, a big thing. I, probably the most written thing throughout this Asher series was engage the crowd. And if I felt a bit energyless or things weren't going my way, uh, just felt slightly off, out it came, you know, here we go. You know, and, and that actually became a really big thing for me because it's quite a brave thing to do. That, you know, ultimately, uh, young players aren't going to do that so much because if I engage the crowd and then bowl a pile of rubbish, not a great look, is it? So it but it, that, that helped me um, rev myself up, get myself in a, a competitive spirit because I knew that I had to deliver my skill but also everything became external and I stopped thinking about little nonsenses that were taking him away from the battle. And you do all that and you still get hit for six, right? Mm. What happens then internally? You swear? <laughs> yeah, um, yeah so, so one of my little triggers that I actually picked up from Tiger Woods was uh, always look above the stands. So the view of that is if someone's watching on TV or the opposition are watching me, I wouldn't want them to know if I've been hit for four, bowled a great ball, got a player miss, been hit for six. My posture should never change walking back to my mark. I should always be head up, I'm six foot six, head up, stand tall, eyes above the stands. And ultimately, my view on it was if I got my eyes to the clouds, I'm not thinking about... You know, it's weird when you're on the pitch, you do see faces. You think, cool, that, that fan's a bit disappointed with that. You know, you do, you do, like... You. You do, you go, oh God, like they're all just drinking the champagne now. They're not interested in this anymore. <laughs> so I get my eyes above the, the stands and zone out of the hot zone for a bit, refocus, turn and go. Uh, that would be a big trigger for me to, you know, if, I, you know if I'm not getting it quite right, if my eyes are really up, you know, I'm getting out of the cauldron. Uh, I'm making sure that I leave that ball behind and, and reset. But yeah, I, I think ultimately... Josh Butler and I have this conversation all the time. Cricket's an interesting sport that really, only probably one in 10, two in 10 days are really great days. It's a game based around being able to deal with failure and being able to deal with uh, someone getting the better of you, but then bouncing back. You know, you're not going to score 100 every day. You're not going to get five for every day. But that's why you can't judge yourself on the outcome all the time. You have to judge yourself on how you felt, whether you delivered your skill, whether you did all you can do. Because ultimately, I can bowl the best spell of my life, get an for, and then uh, bowl really badly and get five for. So if I'm jumping for joy when I get five for, it's actually false. Um, and then if it's all going to poo, then just flip the bales over and you're all right. <laughs> it worked for you. <laughs> I tried it twice in my career and, and, <laughs> and two wickets fell in those. It, should have tried it 17 years ago. Yeah. It would have been all right. Um, actually, the first one was, you know, I'll talk about the second one later, but the first one was Mark Wood was bowling at Marnus Labuschagne. I'm at mid-on and the oval's gone quiet. It's got 11 runs in 14 uh, overs. We're bowling great. Player misses. We're not getting a nick. And I, I was stood at mid-on thinking, I'm, I'm bored. And I'm playing Ashes cricket. If I'm bored, what are the crowd thinking? And, you know, we're all, our team ethos is about entertaining the crowd. And uh, I thought, I'd heard, it turns out I thought I heard, I'd heard that there was an Australian habit that if you flip the bales over, it was a change of luck. I've spoken to quite a few Australians since, and none of them have confirmed that theory. But uh, I walked up to the bales at Marnus's end, 
a bit to get in his grill a little bit into his bubble just get into his space sort of be a presence there and I flipped them over and not many people noticed actually and and I wandered back to mid-on and Mark Wood got the edge Rudy took a great catch and I was like it's worked I can't believe it so I started running towards Stokesy who's captain at at mid-off because he was like cheering away and on my route to Stokesy Usman Khawaja the non-strikers at the stumps and for the first time in my whole career, I celebrated with the opposition. I put my hands on his shoulders and went, it worked, it worked. <laughs> I was like, what am I doing? Um, and, got to, and that's when got to my teammates and they're like, oh my God, you changed the bales, it worked. Like, what did you do that for? I said, oh, I thought it was a change of luck. I was like, oh, that's unbelievable. Uh, so it worked number one and... Uh, very strangely, at work number two as well. Yeah, and we will uh, we'll have a look in the second half of the show about the moment that happened and the luck that, that came from it. But you, you've mentioned a couple of times there, playing with freedom, um, focusing on the process, not the outcome. This is all messages from Brendan McCullum, right? This it's what he lives by, yeah. It's Basball era, but you're not allowed to say Basball because he hates the phrase Basball, right? That's true, yeah. yeah. I'll say it, you don't. Um, I mean, it took the country by storm this summer. I would love to know, when Brendan first walks in, what does he do, what does he say to take away the fear of playing for your country on the biggest stage of all? Because it's one thing to say, don't be fearful. It's a totally different thing to be able to create that in a team. Yeah, I mean, he took over at a time we'd won one in 17 tests. So it's almost like, you know, if you're a coach, it's probably a great time to take over, isn't it? You're not going to do any worse than what's come. Uh, and you can really stamp a different mindset or a different authority on it. And, uh, you know, he, he was in the Lord's Change Room. He d- he's not one for PowerPoint presentations. He doesn't do grand speeches. We were just getting ready for training day one. And he said, uh, boys, just, you know, I have a couple of minutes. Um, you know, I want us to play attacking cricket. I'm going to back you as players. You know, you're my team. Uh, I want us to always have the mindset that if you can take the attacking option, do it. You've got, you know, that's what the change room want from you. He lives by this saying, sort of run towards the danger. You know, if there's danger, run at it. Don't back off it. And he'll always encourage you to, you know, sprint towards pressure moments. Um, Does that work for everyone, though? Well, it has in this team because you sort of got to live by that, you know. And it's a talk in the, in the changing room. If we go a bit negative in with our shell, like recognise that come out of it uh, and he said love you to get on the back pages of the papers but never end up on the front which is quite a, a good message as well so um, I think what did he do to, to sort of get that fear of failure that positivity within the group a I think it's incredibly authentic to both Ben and him that this positive style of cricket he he was a genuine believer that in cricket to sell tickets in the stadium you're, you're fighting against football theatres cinemas, museums, people have spent the money to come and watch you here at Lords of Home of Cricket. Entertain them. You know, they ultimately, they don't want to see you block it and try and like survive. Go and hit boundaries, hit sixes, you know, try and take wickets at every ball, which is quite a, a free way of looking at the game um, because ultimately professional sport, I've always viewed, it, viewed professional sport as this long straight road and, you know, it, the better you can stay on that straight road, there's all things trying to knock you off all the time, trying to bunt you off. But if you stay on that straight road, you'll have great success. And he was just basically saying, this is the direction forward. We're going to run forward all the time. We're going to take no negativity in the change room. Honestly, in 15 months, I've never heard him say one negative word, not once. And I think that's really important because if he comes out and says, play without fear, I'm going to back you. You know, I prefer you to get caught along off than caught in the slips defending. Then if you get out, 
caught long off and he goes, that's a crap shot. Why did you play that? The whole thing's blown. But also if your teammates go, shouldn't have played that shot. It's, that's not acceptable. It's all about, you just need to hit that a yard further. Right. If you hit a yard further, that's six, great shot. You know, so it's, it's a freedom. And one thing that he is incredible at, which is only a tiny thing, he praises small things within the changing room. So if, if Joe Root gets 150, He's not there going, Joe, you're the best player in the world. You're amazing. 150, another one. Well done. Awesome. Barely even mentions the 150. He'll go, Johnny Bester might have got 15, but hit two great fours. He'll go, I just want to say, Johnny, those two fours, they changed the momentum of the game. Honestly, that's exactly what we want to play like. That's exactly what we want. You, you put the pressure back on the bowlers. Yeah, you got out, but you got out in a way that we're trying to promote the game. So stick doing that and if you continue doing that you'll win as a game soon and just doing little things like that suddenly Johnny's got 15 and he's sat there like that Baz mentions him he's like yeah yeah you know and it's a tiny like he really focuses on on building up little positivities all the time you know for me he knew I'm a competitive person it would be you know getting a battle for us today or or get the crowd crowds you today crowds you yeah. just reminding me even if, if I go a bit quiet He'll spot it and go, go on, get, get everyone going out there. Because he knows, never come to me and go, think about your front arm. Or you look, you look like you, you're running, you, your stride pattern's too long. Nothing ever like that. You know, he says, you'll never see me on the tools. What he means by that, you'll never see him get technical and going on the laptop and studying why you're getting out because your foot's gone an inch that way. He's got other coaches that can guide that, but he's very much the mentality of, being positive and you know without sticking on Baz too long there was one moment at Trent Bridge I don't know if you remember England New Zealand we needed we're chasing 280 got to T uh, needed 170 uh, this is only his second ever game in charge Ben and Johnny are at the crease and come in at T games on the line a bit and Ben focuses in next and Ben goes oh if we lose a wicket like what's my job am I shutting up shop am I you know going for the draw get the draw with one up in the series Baz like, everyone in, everyone come in. And we get 20 minute tea break. Uh, just so we're all clear, we're going for the win at all costs. Uh, Jimmy, you're the last man. If you get out there, try and hit boundaries, try and hit runs, take the game away from New Zealand. Uh, you know, um, I'm not, I don't believe in draws. I'm not interested in draws. Look outside. And he made everyone look at Trent Bridge, full house uh, on a Monday. He goes, these guys have, have spent money to come and watch. They don't want to see you block the ball. Go and win the game. And if you lose trying to win, we're all happy, but go and win the game. And uh, everyone was like, mm, okay, that's quite un-English. And uh, <laughs> we, uh, we went out after tea, so everyone sort of sat there watching. And Matt Henry bowls Johnny Best to a bouncer, first ball after tea. And Johnny ducks it. And Stokesy walks down to Johnny and goes, what are you doing? <laughs> and Johnny goes, well, I was having a look at it, first ball after tea. He goes, don't have a look at it. Hit it for six. And then, as you remember, Johnny just went, got 100 and we won the game. And I think that was such a crucial moment because it was the coach saying what he wanted. And then a senior player went and delivered it. And that just gave the whole group like such belief that anything was possible. And we went on that run of winning 10 out of 11, I think. And um, ultimately, I think the thing that rang true the most for me was uh, we're 2-0 down in the Ashes this year. I'm walking out, getting a coffee with, with Molly. And someone walked past me and went, Loving the cricket, keep going. And I wanted to go, we're 2-0 down. 
mm. you know, that was my instinct. I'm like, love winning. And you know, I said, we're two nil down. You know, it, it, we need to get, win the next game. But that really stuck with me that actually the public were just enjoying the style of cricket. And it becomes slight, Baz had managed to change not just 11 players, maybe even the public's view that this is an entertainment, entertainment sport. And actually it's more fun watching teams have a real crack. Yeah. And if it fails, yeah, we don't mind losing. But if it's successful, it's really fun. We also can't discount the role of Ben Stokes in this yeah, sense. You, yeah. you know, you wrote brilliantly in the book about your admiration for Brendan, but also you make it absolutely clear your deep respect for Ben. What what lesson from your time spent with him would you like to share with us that really sort of lays bare just what a special player he is, but more than that, a special person, a special leader? Yeah, a few times. I mean, he um, he's very authentic with what he says. You know, he, he, you can tell that he's never... He never like pre-writes a speech or anything and comes to deliver it. He just sort of says what com- comes to his mind that time. But I think the style of cricket that we play is very much how Stokes he lives his life without speaking out of turn. He's quite held to skelter. He's quite unpredictable. You don't really know what's coming your way. Um, and that's how we play cricket, really. But he actually, before he took over as captain, but he, he covered a game when Ruti was, um, his second child was being born. And I actually, Stokes, he dropped me. It was the COVID game at South Africa. I did a bit of a silly interview in a Big Brother tent, if you remember. Um, and uh, he dropped me because he sort of said, look, I'm going with the pace of these guys. And I felt quite emotional about that. I, I was leading wicket-taker in the world at the time. I didn't agree with the decision. And the next day, we weren't allowed in each other's room. It was the COVID, you know, you had your own room. You weren't allowed to eat together. You had single, like, exam tables to eat on, all that sort of thing. And he knocked on my door and came in my room, which was, you know, we weren't allowed to do at the time. But, uh, and he just, it wasn't him coming in as a captain or anything. He just went, how are you, mate? How are you doing? I was just sat in a dark room. Like, it wasn't around family or anything, so we weren't allowed out. And that was probably his, his strongest bit of leadership. He, he knew that he'd maybe been quite a big part in the decision of leaving me out. But he had the heart and respect to come and knock on my room just check how I was he didn't go how are you bowling like how's the cricket all that just because how are you doing and you know that's probably he's like that with every single player he calls you at random times just checking in how you're doing so he's just a ultimately Baz and Stokes they're just really great human beings and and that's uh, led to the team just falling in love with their style of leading I think brilliant and what did that do for you when he came in and said that it lifted me I mean I, I had no real anger towards him anyway particularly I was angry at a bit of myself for not getting in the team and some other decision making that I, I didn't agree with but ultimately I, I I loved the fact that he took ownership of the decision a little bit and looked at me in the eye and and said he had a part to play um he didn't say it was a wrong decision or the right decision but uh you know he he he, he boosted me from that moment I knew it wasn't a personal thing I knew it wasn't our friendship wasn't going to be affected I could draw a line in the sand and go and and attack and get better. And actually, I had a really good end, end of that summer from, from that moment. So, yeah, that taught me that if there's ever any sort of niggle or question marks and someone's brain's whirling, just go and speak to them. You know, be honest, you know, go and, go and uh, almost like attack the, the awkwardness and, yeah. and people get over it. And look, I, you know, we all know what you did as a, as a cricketer. I think this has been such an interesting insight into how you've done it. I suppose... Before we wrap up this first half, I'm interested in, like, where does the energy go now? You know, you're someone who made notes every day. You're someone who was in a team environment. You were ultra competitive. You had your Everests. You had the next test, the next series, the next competition, the next opportunity to push yourself to the limit. Like, as you sit here today, where's all that energy gone? 
You've had a one-year-old baby before, <coughs> oh, mate. <laughs> that energy Say no goes more. There. <laughs> Say no more. Um, no, I mean, I think, you know, it's, it's really important to... That's why I, I don't like the, that R word, because I, I am just moving sideways in different careers, whether it goes into coaching, whether it's punditry. Uh, I, I think it's really important to have quite a clear direction, but also quite conscious that I don't want to leap into a decision straight away of... of 100% committing to that because if I do that and in six months I go, ooh, you know, I'm not, I'm not sure about that, I, I, that, would, that would not sit that comfortably with me. So I'm sort of starting a bit of a, that journey again of feeling what I really do enjoy, uh, uh, you know, ultimately spending a little bit more time at home with the family and, and, and figuring out what that next thing is. But I've set a goal that basically from 2024 I'll be very clear in, in where I want to go uh, and you know, get back to it. Alter, cricket's my love. I want to stay within cricket, whether that be full-time coaching at, straight away, probably not because um, of the extra travel and the time commitment and actually whether I'd be good enough to, to do that straight away, I'm not sure. But, um, you know, give my knowledge that I've gained over such a long period of time to younger cricketers, to, to people trying to make their way in the game because the more knowledge you get at a young age, the, the quicker you can grow. And are you still doing the note-making? Oh, annoyingly, so I went for a run actually and listened to Dan Carter that you were talking to and he said after he moved away from rugby, he had a moment like two, three months later and he was like, I've not written a journal, I've not done the things I was doing that made me successful in rugby and I, I was actually running, I think it was last Saturday and he said it and I stopped, I was like, I haven't, I've not written anything down since the oval finished. It's almost like, I signed away from cricket and I thought, oh, sign away from my mental habits. Well, actually, that was, it was a great realisation for me because I didn't write necessarily just about cricket. I wrote about feelings, thoughts, what I'm grateful for. So why have I stopped since I've moved away from cricket? So that was a great, um, a great moment for me in the fact that, you know, why would I not spare five minutes a day to just continue the mindset that served me so well in the pressure of cricket where I've moved into the pressure of life and, and everything else? So, yeah, I, I, I got back to that. Great. I love that. Right, now, before we finish, I've got some of my quick-fire questions that will sit at the end of this, uh, this podcast episode for the audience that listen. And the first one is, what are the three non-negotiable behaviours that you and the people around you need to buy into? Um, for me, consistency in mental prep is a big one. Uh, like I just said, three months or two and a half months without doing that, that was a realisation for me. So that'll be a... That'll be something that I will lead forward for sure. Pushing boundaries, and that's quite a unique one, but I think that that was something that I was really strong at in my career. I think coaches maybe didn't always see eye to eye with me because I'd ask why and how a little bit. They'd come and say, right, I think we need to bowl fuller now. I'd be like, why? Give me some information as to why. And, and that, that, that always helped me um, move my game forward because I think... If you're just a bit of a yes person and um, you take on every bit of advice all the time and take it as gospel, then what are you learning for yourself? What are you gathering for yourself and finding what really works for you? So I will always push boundaries on seniority a little bit, but like what, play devil's advocate a little bit. You know, why, why should I do that? Um, and how is it going to make me better as a, as a person and a player? Good, that's two. Um, and the one I live by from Durban was consistent improvement, continuous improvement all the time. And I think with that, all of the top professionals I played with, Joss, Stokesy, Rooty, Jimmy, 
it's always their number one goal, always their non-negotiable. They're, they're, they're looking for something in their game, in their preparation, in their physicality, within the change room that can, that can improve them. And I, I, I didn't do that for four or five months around the Durban incident. And I live by that ever since, even up until. What's your advice for a teenage Stuart just starting out on his journey? Yeah, I mean, we touched on it a little bit with, uh, with the note making, but I, I said I started at 26-ish dabbling and took it more seriously into my 30s. But actually, when we talk in sport about experience, oh, the players got better with experience and the team's better with the experience in there. How could you grow that quicker? How can you grow the experience quicker? And I think if I had my time again at 15, 16, I'd start writing only three, you know, it takes five minutes to write, you know, thoughts, grateful feelings, just I start writing them down then and I, I, I would have probably learned how to express my feelings better. I would have learned where the consistencies in my mind, mindset lay and what really spurred me on. So I did learn later that it was external things that got me going, crowds and you know, feeding off energy of teammates. At the start, I didn't really realise that. I probably you know, enjoyed the crowd but didn't engage with the crowd that much. Uh, so I would, I would definitely tell a 15-year-old Stuart to to write more, to, to make a little journal. To, I've got something to look back on and, and learn from. Nice. What is your biggest strength? What is your greatest weakness? Can that be the same? Yes. Has anyone ever said it's the same before? Yes. Uh, <laughs> um, I'm stubborn. Right. Really stubborn, which is a great strength. So that, so that single minus, like, I will get this job done. I will do it. You know, I will not let you down. Uh, set me a challenge and it will get done. But it also, a weakness of mine and why coaches have probably found me niggly at times is takes a lot of convincing for me to change like that. Do you know what I mean? I, I, need, I, need, to, I need the information. I need data, facts, whatever. I'm not just going to be an emotional changer of something. If I think it's the right thing for me and someone else doesn't agree with that, it can be a bit like that, but I've got better with age on that. I think I was worse in my 20s. I was like, no, don't need that. Don't, I've got this, I've got that. So stubbornness uh, is a great strength, but, but definitely has been a pretty decent weakness. How important is legacy to you? Um, one thing that rang really true, like the All Blacks legacy of leaving that shirt in a better place is a really good really good thing I, uh, that definitely sat with me a lot of the time and and ultimately when I did move away from the game I could hang that shirt up in my spot and go you know I've played a little part in that shirt being in a better place um, not just through individual performances but also the last 15 months of leading what Baz wanted to get across uh, and I think legacy changes with every personnel and, and every style of coach and group but I feel proud that there's, you know, the, the basketball legacy, I, I've played a part in starting that, you know, hard to deny it is a legacy if it's in the dictionary, you know what I mean? There you go. It's <laughs> set there forever. Um, and the final question, your one golden rule that you'd like to leave people with for living a high performance life? Ooh, golden rule. Challenge your limitations, but learn and stick by your strengths, I'd say. You know, the, you know be aware of what doesn't work for you and work on getting better at them. But also if you've got strengths that you know work for you, stick by them and stick true to them.
Brilliant. Listen, thank you so much for that. I think, you know, we've all watched from the outside and just gone, what a talented guy taking wickets and playing amazingly for England. So to sit here and get, you know, full in-depth answers into how you changed, how you adapted, how you worked on your mindset, the culture of the England team under, under Brendan and everything else is so fascinating for all of us. So for now, ladies and gentlemen, please thank the incredible Stuart Broad. So that's it then. Um, I told you it was a really fascinating insight into the kind of guy that Stuart is and the things that he's done to get to where he got to in his career. And I think a reminder that um, you can't just stumble through. I love the fact that, you know, he was in his mid-twenties when he realised that he couldn't just stumble through. And if you're thinking about a change of pace in your life, then maybe this is the conversation that might just give you that impetus and that drive that you need to go and do whatever it is that you want. And if you want more of these kinds of conversations, don't forget you can download the High Performance app. Just go to the App Store, search for High Performance. And our book, How to Change Your Life, is available right now. And if you're looking to change, honestly, it's a book that will guide you through the five key steps and help you get to a place that you want to be. Thank you so much once again for listening and sharing the lessons you're taking from these conversations. Remember to remain humble, curious, and keep on searching for your own version of high performance. Thanks for listening. 